Supreme Court has recognized for over 100 years that parents have a constitutionally protected interest in making educational choices for their children. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a reality check. Welcome to another great edition of Reality Check. I'm Jeannie Allen. The Supreme Court will convene this year, as it always does, on the first Monday of October. One of the most far-reaching cases it will hear during this term is Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue. The case deals with state-level Blaine amendments, which are the excuse 37 states currently use to prevent public funds from supporting religiously affiliated schools, even if parents need and prefer those options to their traditional public school. If the high court rules in favor of Espinoza, the case will be one of the most significant cases for education and parental rights in recent history. CER, on behalf of several groups, filed an amicus brief with the court, and my amazing guest today is Paul Clement, former United States Solicitor General and author of CER's brief. Paul served as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States from 2004 to 2008 and has argued over 95 cases before the United States Supreme Court. He's a partner in the Washington office of Kirkland Ellis and a lecturer at the Georgetown University Law Center. Paul, I am so pleased that you're willing to join us today for Reality Check. It is my pleasure. It was my pleasure to work on the amicus brief as well. And it turned out to be a fabulous amicus brief, and we will make sure that our listeners have a link to it. But, like, let's just jump in to the whole notion first of what this court case is all about. I have been finding, as I talk to people, Paul, that so few people even know what the Blaine Amendment is. So the Blaine Amendment is is a very good place to start in these cases because, you know, the Blaine Amendment started as a federal effort, and thank goodness it was unsuccessful at the federal level. But uh, having failed at the federal level, then it spread to, as you said, you know, well over half the states. And the Blaine Amendment, in a nutshell, was a response, really, to the increase of Irish immigration and other Catholic immigration, and there was a response, uh, and, and a lot of folks didn't like that change, and their response to that was to say that not one cent of federal government money or state government money could ever go to what they called sectarian schools, but what they meant by sectarian was definitely Catholic. Fascinating. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, you get asked to do a lot of different things uh, for causes. You can't say yes to um, getting involved in all of them. Uh, you're a very busy attorney. Um, what got you interested in this case? Is there something in particular that stuck out to you? Well, a, a couple of things, Jeannie. First, is, as you well know, I mean, this is in some respects a follow-up to the very important case that the Supreme Court had uh, some 15 years ago probably now, the Zellman case involving the Ohio School Choice Program. And long before I was in the Solicitor General's office, I filed an amicus brief uh, in the Sixth Circuit for the Center for Education Reform. And this is an issue that's been on my radar screen an awfully long time. 
Um, so this, this is really uh, a case in the Supreme Court that I very much wanted to be involved with and, and really very happy to do uh, a brief on your behalf. I mean, the reason it's so important is because this case is really the bookend to the Zellman case, because in that case, the Supreme Court said there was no federal constitutional obstacle to having the state make money available neutrally to parents to use at a school of their choice, whether it be a private non-sectarian school or a private religious school. And what has happened since then, though, is that a number of states, um, sometimes even after the legislature has passed that kind of program, whether it be a voucher program or an aid program or a tax credit program, state Supreme Courts, even after the legislature have passed those reforms, have said, well, we can't do that in our state. Even if the federal government allows that, even if the Supreme Court said there's not an Establishment Clause problem, you can't do it in our state because of our state Blaine Amendment. And lo and behold, there was a case winding its way up as we're hearing those excuses forever. And then this little case in Montana began to wind its way up through the courts um, on behalf of a mom who was using a tax credit scholarship program in Montana. That's exactly right, and this fit the classic pattern. The Montana legislature tried to uh, get a degree of parental empowerment and give new options to parents in a tax credit program. I don't think anybody on either side of this case for one minute could say that the Montana tax credit program had any problem under the Federal Establishment Clause the way it was passed. It was completely neutral. You could use the funds that this made available to go to any private school that a parent thought was going to be the best school for their child. But lo and behold, the state government interpreting their state Blaine Amendment said, first, we can't have any of this money go to any religious schools because of our state constitution. And then to sort of add insult to injury, when the case went to the Montana Supreme Court, they not only said that the Blaine Amendment prevented any of this money going to state religious schools, but because the legislature had intended the program to go to both religious and non-religious schools, they ended up scrapping the whole program uh, just because some of the funds might, because of the intervening choices of parents, end up in the coffers of a school with a religious affiliation. Well, and before we get to the arguments that you made in the brief, one of which is so clear if you look at any open, any newspaper today, open your child's uh, state report card, school report card, not just their classroom report card, and our educational outcomes are not doing very well. And you talk about that. But before we can get to this, this notion of blame amendment. So there's this guy, James Blaine, James G. Blaine, and no one quite has realized a lot of people, as I said at the top of the show, Paul Clement, realized that there was a guy named James G. Blaine who was part of the Know Nothing Party, and he ran for president, he failed, and he tried to get this amendment enacted at the federal level, and we keep seeing these really interesting vignettes uh, that the cartoonist Tom and Thomas Nash has documented in imagery, and things written about him, this was, as you said at the beginning, kind of this response to these Catholics coming in and other things. This was a political crusade, right? Oh, absolutely, and it was a nationwide political crusade. 
And it really is the kind of thing that I, th- I think if you, if you analyze it through modern eyes, it's just the most pernicious form of religious discrimination that you can imagine. And the idea that it's still enshrined on the books in over half the states is, is, is really you know, kind of a national scandal. I mean, I really don't know that there's another word for it. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that the people who oppose educational options, parental empowerment, are siding with someone who they claim that they would never be on the same field with. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what the unions and what the arguments they're going to make um, on the other side uh, are, are, how they're going to sound in defending James G. Blaine. Yeah, no, and I know in this case in particular, I know one of the arguments the other side will make is that the state of Montana, which initially passed this amendment kind of, you know, back at, you know, shortly after statehood when these Blaine amendments were in their full force in something like 1972, there was a reauthorization of the whole state constitution, and they're going to claim that that somehow makes a difference. But, of course, I don't think that argument would carry water in Another context, if you imagine a state constitutional amendment that had a demonstrably racist motivation, the fact that the same text had been reenacted later in history, I don't think would cure the original taint for the, the amendment. And, you know, it is, it is really surprising, frankly, that some of the opponents of educational choice are willing to wrap themselves in these amendments that I don't think they would rely on in almost any other context. So tell us about the other arguments then in the brief, Paul. You, um, you talk about educational success and outcomes um, and some of the data. What else? Well, so at, at the broadest level, what the brief does is it contrasts what a direct and important stake that the parents have in being able to send their children to the school they think is best for their child without regard to whether the school happens to be affiliated with a religious uh, organization, to really contrast that very direct interest of the parents with the very indirect and attenuated interest the government has to where its funds go because of the intervening choice of uh, individual parents and students. And so I want to talk about both pieces of those eventually if we have time, but yes. on, on the first part about the direct interest of the parents, I mean, the Supreme Court has recognized for over 100 years that parents have a constitutionally protected interest in making educational choices for their children. And what we try to do in the amicus brief, and I think makes it uh, a really interesting read, is we map up this 100-year-old constitutional right with cutting-edge science about how the brain works, how learning takes place, and we really show that you know, the court really has had this right because nobody uh, knows how their children learn better than parents. The brain science shows that there is an amazing diversity in, which, in, in the ways in which people learn. No two people learn exactly the same way, and that means that no two children learn in the same way. And I think that bears out just some common sense principle. I mean, if you think about parents who have either the means or are lucky to live in a state where they have the ability to send their child to a variety of different schools 
maybe a public school option and a couple of private school options. Those parents, if they have multiple children, don't always pick the same school for all of their children. Parents just intuitively know right. that one particular kind of learning environment may be better uh, for Johnny and a better environment for, for, for Mary is at a different school. And the science that we put forth in the amicus brief really bears that up and kind of ties it all together. That, you know, the court has recognized something for 100 years that cutting-edge modern science reinforces. Such a great point. And, and, and that, again, comes back to one of the continual themes of sort of the education transformation movement is what I like to call it these days, that so much of what we do today is based on now ancient, completely dated, outdated, outmoded um, practices, including amendments like this, which ban you from actually exercising that constitutionally protected right to send your child somewhere, but maybe the fit is better for them rather than trying to fit a, uh, a square peg in a round hole. No, and, and again, I think the experience bears that out because they're certainly, when empowered by either their own resources or a government program, there's certainly going to be some parents who pick a school precisely because of its religious affiliation. But there are going to be other parents who pick that same school kind of despite its religious affiliation. I mean, they may think that, okay, you know, all, all things being equal, I wish that, you know, that school had a different religious organize, you know, organizing principle or was non-religious. Right. But you actually get a situation where they'll nonetheless pick that school because they think it's the best one for their child's learning needs. And it's, you know, it really is perverse for a parent, especially one who's making the choice without regard to the religious education, to be penalized and have that option taken away just because the school has a religious affiliation. And why is it taken so long for a case like this to get before the court? I mean, I know at one point in time, um, some some you know, jurists said that, or theorists in, in the law said that, that the state case would not be germane at the federal level. Is that part of it? Or was it, was it just a matter of luck waiting for someone to be denied something? Well, no, I actually think there is a reason here why this case took a while to make its way to the Supreme Court. And I think it, it, it gets to the second part of the amicus brief we filed which it talks about how attenuated the state's interest is in the destination of its own funds once they get to a school or get to a church because of the intervening decisions of individuals. And what I think has happened is that over the past 20 years, in cases on both sides of the, of the big Zellman case out of Ohio that we talked about earlier, the Supreme Court has over and over again emphasized that there's no Establishment Clause problem under the federal Constitution if money gets to religious organizations only because of the intervening choices of parents and children. And so in the Supreme Court's Establishment Clause jurisprudence, over the last 20 years, they've developed a very clear line between direct aid, where the money goes right from the government to the religious organization, which sometimes can still be constitutional, but raises more difficult constitutional issues. And then what the court has called indirect aid, where the money 
goes directly to parents or to children or in some cases just to a government employee. And then those individuals make their own decision on a neutral basis as to how they're going to spend that money or where they're going to use a tax credit or where they're going to use scholarship funds. And in those so-called indirect aid cases, the court has largely said if the aid is indirect and the choices available to the parents are neutral, there's not going to be an establishment clause violation. And in the process of those cases, what the court has made crystal clear is that the state just doesn't have much of an interest as to where its funds go once they're put in the hands of third parties. And, you know, the classic cases, I, I mean, I worked for the government for seven-plus years um, in the Solicitor General's office, and I got a check from the government every month, and I used part of that check to make a contribution to my church. Mm-hmm. And nobody thinks that's an Establishment Clause violation. And the Supreme Court cases have now made that crystal clear. And so I think now that that proposition is clear, if you look at these cases where a state government is saying, I want to deny a parent their choice of going to a religious school just because it's religious, because I have this state constitutional provision on the books that says we don't want any money, state money, going even indirectly to religious schools, I think in light of 20 years plus of Supreme Court cases highlighting that the state has very little interest in the ultimate destination of its funds, I think this case just looks much more constitutionally problematic for the states than it did 20 or 25 years ago. That's really interesting, thinking thinking that way. And, you know, the state's money, of course, is our money. And so when a state has funds, and this is actually something I think a lot of people, uh, even the smartest people out there, sometimes don't realize how education dollars are both collected and spent. I mean, you might see your property taxes, and you may know that some of that money, a lot of that money in some cases goes to your schools. But the whole notion of following a dollar and how it ends up at an agency, at a school district, at a school, and then you as a parent, a guardian, have a child, and that child then is sent to that school dependent on zip code. Again, unless, Paul, as you said earlier, you happen to live in a place where you have a choice that's subsidized, you can pay it yourself, you've made some decision about the schools where you live, you are relegated to a school where dollars have gone, presumably to educate your child. And if that education's not working, then why would you want the money staying there? And so in this case, that scholarship tax credit that you get after spending money or scholarship up front or voucher, as some people call it, ends up with a parent designating the funds to go to a school. That's that indirect um, push. And, and that dollar has not had any change at all other than instead of going from one mandated place, the parent then said, nah, I don't want it going there. I want it going over to this institution, no matter who it's affiliated with. Isn't that all? So that's kind of the funding of education in a nutshell. Um, But isn't it also interesting that I think that's kind of the way federal and state funds work for hospitals, right? There's a lot of Catholicly affiliated hospitals. There are Catholic 
higher education institutions and we send federal money. What's the difference between those two? Is that not a valid comparison? No, I think it is a valid comparison. And I think this is really something that's, again, been kind of a real watershed change over kind of the last 20 years is maybe even 25 years is that in a variety of circumstances, you know, government has recognized that government monopolies don't always work. And so government has enlisted kind of, you know, private-public partnerships or done other things to allow government money to then go to institutions to perform some kind of service that maybe 25 years ago would have been done directly by the government. And I think what the court's cases have really recognized is that in those cases, when, as you say, it starts off as sort of your money as the taxpayer, and then the government doesn't spend it itself, but makes it available to a number of providers who then provide some kind of service for the government, there really doesn't make any sense for the government, as long as it doesn't channel that money exclusively to religious organizations, it doesn't really make any sense for the government to exclude religious organizations from participating on an equal basis. And I think in all of these cases where the government money is only going to a religious entity indirectly because of intervening choices of parents and the like, I think in all of those situations, you know, the, the principle that really emerges from the Supreme Court's cases is that, you know, neutrality is the important point. If, you know, if the government tries to channel every penny to Catholic hospitals, that might be a problem in the hospital space or the school space. But if it makes the money available to hospitals or to daycare providers or to uh, schools and does it on a neutral basis, then, you know, the principle of kind of non-discrimination is, is really all the Constitution requires. And that's why these state laws that sort of force states to discriminate, uh, I think, really, you know, start to look like a constitutional outlier. So what happens specifically between now and the time the court considers uh, this case? So we know that it's not being heard in 2019, right? We're hopeful that maybe it will be on the docket in January to yeah, be heard? I think it's almost certain that it'll be on the, on the docket for January. I mean, there's always a couple of vagaries of scheduling, so it could end up in February, but I think it'll be uh, in January. And so I think what, what happens between now and January is that uh, the, the, the state's brief will be filed, um, presumably with a few amicus briefs in support of the state's brief. Um, then the, the challengers, the parent, will get to file a reply brief. And then uh, there will be the oral argument in January, and then we can expect a Supreme Court decision sometime before the end of June 2020. Okay, and assuming uh, the side of the, of the parent, Espinoza, the side that we've argued for, assuming that wins, um, it's difficult to believe that the various establishment groups, if, uh, for example, if the Janus decision, the union decision that uh, we know about, my listeners might remember us talking about the decision that uh, relegated mandatory bargaining to the trash heap. Um, but but what happens? These folks are not going to give up, right? So what do you, what do you think their act, their course of actions will be 
if they lose. I mean, in Janus, the unions were still making it impossible for rank-and-file members to file their papers and leave the union, even though you have a constitutional right now not to be part of a union, not to pay fees, zip. What recourse is there if the losing party simply refuses to comply with the Supreme Court's ruling? Well, uh, so I, I think it all will depend a little bit on how the Supreme Court decision is written, because the court could write this narrowly or could write it broadly. Um, you know, the Supreme Court had a, had a case a few years ago that was somewhat similar involving state funds that were made available to make playgrounds safer, and the court wrote a decision that at least one footnote said really, you know, didn't decide much besides playground safety. So the court could make it narrow, could make it broad, and depending on that, that's one thing that you could see as a battleground for sort of the next round of cases. I mean, the other thing I think that we may see is that, you know, you may see the, uh, the, the, the battle shift a little bit to try to get states not to provide any kind of these programs at all, uh, providing aid to any uh, private schools. And, uh, you know, I do think this is a context where, though, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure groups like yours would welcome that fight because, you know, I, I think these programs are, are, are popular for a reason, which is empowering parents to make educational decisions for their children. Just it, it, it makes sense, and it maps on to something that I think most people just understand intuitively. It's interesting. Uh, Paul Clement, let me ask you one final question just in general about your really interesting background. You clerked for the late, great Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, What a fascinating dinner companion he'd make. I bet most of my listeners would agree. What do you think his lasting mark will be on the Supreme Court of the United States? Oh, his, his legacy has so many different ramifications. I mean, you know, he is such, you know, I'm biased, obviously, having clerked for him, but I think he's such a, such a consequential associate justice, probably, you know, one of just the handful of most consequential uh, justices that have served on the court in our nation's history. He's really fundamentally changed the way that the court looks at constitutional issues, the way they look at statutory interpretation. I mean, you know, Justice Kagan, uh, a couple of you know months ago at some public event, kind of made the point that you know all the justices are textualists now, um, even even you know the justices appointed by Democratic presidents, and and I think that's all really kind of because of Justice Scalia and just the force of his intellect and his personality when he served on the court, and you know I'd say part of that legacy is in these religion cases and in these Establishment Clause cases in particular. I mean, he was one of the five votes to say that the Ohio School Choice Program was constitutional. Um, he was, you know, at one, of the, one of the voices in dissent um, in an earlier case involving some of the issues here, a case called Lock v. Davey. He and Justice Thomas were, you know, the only votes there that said that the discrimination in that program was unconstitutional. And I, I think, you know, some of the principles he laid down in those cases, I, you know, I'm hopeful will be vindicated by a majority of the court this time around. Well, I certainly hope so, and that is a great note to end on. I have been so thrilled that you've been my guest today, Paul Clement, uh, former Solicitor General for the United States of America, leading attorney in Washington, Georgetown University Law Center instructor, and the author of an amazing amicus brief in Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue, which will be argued before the Supreme Court this term. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. It was a great pleasure.
For more information about the Espinoza case, be sure to check out our website at edreform.com. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Reality Check and follow the Blaine Amendment and James G. Blaine. We're going to put him on the trash heap of history, I'm hoping to. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.